0: So tonight we're back in our skeptical series, week three, Hasn't Science Disproved Christianity? So we're going to try and tackle a pretty uh, difficult question tonight and uh, see if we can wrestle it to the ground. I think we can, Uh, but honestly, this is probably out of the six questions that we're going to ask in this particular series. This is probably the question that you or I get asked the most or have the biggest hang-ups with. Science and Christianity always seem to be at odds with one another, so how do we deal with those things? So, uh, before we get started tonight, though, what I would like to do is open our time together uh, with prayer. So let's pray together tonight. Father, we come before you tonight, and we admit, I admit, that I can uh, do nothing, I am nothing without you and without your help. And so I pray tonight that you would help us to um, think well while acknowledging that it's only through your power that we can even do anything. Thank God I ask tonight, trusting in your word. uh, This is a difficult question. There are potentially hundreds of questions that spring from this one particular question. So I trust that what your word says is true, that Psalm 19105 says, your word is a lamp unto uh, my feet and a light unto my path. So trusting that your word is powerful and capable of convincing even the most ardent, strident, strident skeptic in the room tonight. That it would be clear from your word how uh, we can answer the question about science and Christianity. And So I ask right now in this moment, you'll be with my preaching, that it would be anointed by you. And then God, tonight, we would be so quick to give you thanks for what you do as a result of our time together, considering this question. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I really honestly don't know of a more divisive issue that faces the church and the academic world than probably the idea of science and Christianity. They can s- seem to be at odds. I think we would be told many, many times over that they are at odds. I don't really think that they're at odds. Just putting my cards on the table, I don't think they're at as big of odds as we think that they are. But I do recognize that this is a valid question. I recognize that it's a valid hang-up even for Christians after they come to know Christ, too. See, I think a lot of times we, as Christians, can kind of come off like maybe we don't wrestle with anything or we're not skeptical of anything, uh, but if we're honest at some point along the line in our walk with Christ or our relationship with Christ There are questions that inevitably come up that we maybe don't know how to handle don't know how to answer Maybe get nervous by And so tonight just full cards on the table just full transparency I think we need to say as Christians. It's okay to be skeptical Because at times sometimes we even aren't so with that in mind three um Presuppositions, maybe? Three um, admissions on my on my part before we dive into the topic. Number one, Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Since it is that way, it is infallible, contains no error. We and so we look to it for all of our answers. So I'm gonna give you the arguments. But I want you to know they're inherently based on Scripture. I'm going to argue some philosophical arguments at some point tonight. But ultimately, we believe that the power to answer your questions and my questions comes from the Bible. That's our number one starting point. Number two, I said this week one. I'll say it again. Christianity is not a religion. A lot of times you'll hear Christians say that it's not. It is a religion. It is a religion. But it's different from all the other religions. And I can't unpack that right now because that's week five. So if I do that, then week five we come and stare at each other, and then it's awkward. <laughs> but Christianity is religion. But a lot of times what Christians will get dinged for is they'll say, well, you're non-thinking people. You're just like those faith people. Just any question, any objection, the answer is just have more faith. No, no. That's not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity engages both the heart and the mind. So you got to come tonight with your thinking cap on, as we used to say when we were little. Put your thinking cap on. I don't really know where that came from. I was always a little worried. I couldn't wear. Hat. I went to a Christian school, so you couldn't wear hats inside, and the, and the teacher would say, "Put your thinking cap on." And even as a small child, I said, "This is an ethical problem." Even if I have a metaphysical cap in this moment, I'm breaking a rule. I was a very weird child. (laughs) And so we believe that you should think, that you should engage with your mind, that I'm going to actually put forward some arguments that are going to cause you to think, hopefully. Third admission before we get started. I think it's important. Um, It's not good public speaking form to project your inadequacies on your audience, but hey, This is church where we try and be open and honest with the people who we talk to. I'm not a classically trained scientist, but if the answer to this question has to be answered by a classically trained scientist, then I think that science is uh, a rude field because no one says you have to be a theologian to answer this question. Like you have to have eight PhDs in systematic theology in order to answer this question. In fact, Christianity believes that Everyone's a theologian, and they're always making arguments, and they're always putting forward something. Even if you said that God is not real, you're putting forward a theological argument. So if you're sitting in the room and you're like, I don't trust theologians, well, you should not trust yourself because you are a theologian, whether you like it or not, because any statement about what you believe about God commits you to being a theologian. But with that being said, I'm not a classically trained scientist, which means that – I've gone and done research, but talking about certain topics tonight, even in the Q&A, are probably, if we get to a point, I might have to tap out because I just, look, I got introduced to the multiverse this week, and I'm still trying to figure that out, so physics, quantum physics, going deep, those things, I will do my best to hang with us in this talk and then in the Q&A that follows, but I just want to admit that I'm not a classically trained scientist, and I would go further and suggest that unless you hold like multiple master's degrees from places in science, physics, and other engineering degrees, advanced degrees, that you're not technically a classically trained scientist yet either. So we all have to operate on the same playing field. So with that in mind, with those kind of admissions laid in front of us, I want to put before us three case studies ...that um, I think will help us answer the question of hasn't science disproved Christianity? So if we're going to answer this, I want to go to three specific case studies, three major objections I think that exist to answer this particular question. And if you're familiar at all with the debate against science and Christianity, you know where I'm going to have to start. So case study number one is creation. It is impossible to talk about science and Christianity without starting at creation... And so let's dive in. So if you're familiar with the Bible, even if you're not, it's going to be an easy passage for you to find. It's Genesis 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you on the little rack there. Pull that out. It will be on page 3. I used to say page 1. Then I made sure I looked up where the pages were, and it's actually not page 1. That's like the table of contents, and that's not where Genesis 1 is. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we'll be going to read two verses then skip over a lot of verses and get to Genesis 2 chapter 2 verse 1 and I'll explain why in a second. Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then from Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. All the way to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, we uh, see read for us or the description of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Genesis 2, 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So here is what Christianity claims. That God is the divine creator. That the God of the Bible is the divine creator. Now, at this particular point, science, traditional science, being taught in most classrooms across the country in high schools and colleges are immediately at odds. So you say, David, we've got a problem. The Bible says that God created the universe. Others postulate that it just kind of showed up or that it expanded into existence or some would use the terminology that it had a big bang. And came to exist. Depending on what school or philosophy. That you come from. That is where we're at odds. So you say David. See boom. Right off the bat. Christianity. It's out. Science has disproved it. Obviously. Obviously David. Come on. God could not have created the universe. It's nice for you simpletons. Who believe in a higher power. That created the earth. But rational thinking people are convinced of this very point. Well, I'm going to take you to an age-old argument. It's, it's so old in fact that it's older than everybody in the room, which is not hard to do. So fact in it's so old in fact it goes all the way back to uh, the 13th and 14th century. It's referred to as the Kalam cosmological argument and some of you are like, "Oh my gosh, what did I get myself into coming to church tonight?" Trust me, I'm not going to go to the deep end of the pool cuz I can't swim there either. But What I am going to do is walk you through this argument because I think it's compelling. The Kalam Cosmological Argument is used by multiple religions. You say, David, why would you start here? Well, because it helps us to understand the universe just how it is ultimately set up. The Kalam Cosmological Argument argues this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Here's the argument. Causation takes Place. Something cannot come from nothing. Now immediately we're at an impasse. Because you say, aha. You are arguing ten years behind in science. We've actually surpassed the Big Bang Theory. We've surpassed this idea that the that matter has expanded or exploded into existence. Matter always has existed. That's an impossibility. What the current evolutionary argument does is give a metaphysical answer to something or tries to give a metaphysical principle to something that is a scientific law. In other words, the universe must begin to exist and it must have a cause. That's the second part. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The second part is that the universe began to exist. A true number of past events is finite. There cannot be an infinite number of past events. You say, okay, why is that important? Because if you were to trace back everything in history, it eventually has to get to a starting point. We cannot just continually progress further and further back into time. Math is helpful here. If you've hung around our college ministry for any length of time, And if you are a first-time visitor, I will just admit it, I am no mathematologist, but I do understand this principle, that there eventually has to be a starting point at which we count the number is zero. Now, you can go from zero infinitely in the positive or in the negative direction. Math has proven that. But what math also has proven is that eventually, it all starts at zero. It's the ultimate starting point. Furthermore, some really smart guys that were helpful to me on this particular point, Bord, Guth, and Villiken, also known as the BVG theorem, proves that any universe that has been expanding throughout history cannot be infinite in the past and must have a space-time boundary. Now, even if you believe in the multiverse, the BBG theorem says at this particular point that there is a particular starting point. Everybody goes, okay. Therefore, okay, so let's just trace the argument back. Whatever begins to exist has to have a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, principle number three, the universe has a cause. Causation is the key on which all of this creation debate hinges on. There must be a cause. I may say, "David, what about God? God has to have a cause. You're trying to prove that God exists, actually would not argue that God exists. Before everybody runs out of the room. All the members go down and get pastor or somebody who's on staff to come drag me out of the pulpit. Just hang on with me for a second. God does not exist in the sense of which we understand the word to be exist. God is a being. He transcends existence. See, even in this moment, you've existed more than you have up until this point now 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 24 hours ago you existed less than you currently do now and we could trace you all the way back to your birth you say that's not true you've developed a lot for somebody who doesn't exist from the moment of your conception to where you are right now some of you have existed more and some would argue better since the time you Entered into college. Even if you've only been in college for a month. Some would argue you've grown. You've matured. See if we are to argue that God exists. That he is constantly growing. Then he must have a starting point, And therefore he cannot be God. Because in order for him to be God. Who exists before the establishment of time. He must be an infinite being. Or a divine being. A divine infinite being. This is who God is. People are always like to argue for the existence of God. I don't want to argue for the existence of God because if God exists in a way that we understand existence, then he's not God. But we're always trying to do this, Christians. We're always trying to argue the existence of God. If God exists, then he is learning more about who he is and growing into God. Our friends who are open theists, and by friends, I mean people who teach heretical heretical doctrine, who we would not agree with at all, are right. God is growing into his godness. Okay, so that's one part of the argument. That's a deep argument, right? You're like, David, this is great, but much like you, I can't swim at that level. And cosmological argument already had me... Slipping towards the third stage of anesthesia. So help me. Is there anything more than just this cosmological argument? I would argue this idea. That Genesis 1 gives us a plain understanding of how the earth came into existence. It gives us a compressed prologue of creation. Then Genesis 2 expands on that understanding. But I want to move maybe a little bit more practical, and argue from this understanding. One of the reasons why we know that there must be a creator, or that creation does exist, is the idea of transcendence. You say, what? The human being, you, give us proof for the fact that there is a transcendent creator that's created you for so much more. You say, how do you know that, David? Well, think about it. No animal, no non-homo sapien walks up to another animal and says to them, after months of not seeing them, my, how you've grown. You say, how do you, what? Makes no sense. See, here's what's intriguing. You're going to go home for Thanksgiving and that weird aunt is going to be waiting there for you. You know she is. Even right now, when I said that, somebody popped into your brain. You know who I'm talking about. Say, it's not a weird aunt, it's a weird uncle. Or it might be my mom. (laughs) And they're going to say, you just saw them. Some of you live in town. You've seen them within three weeks of Thanksgiving. But every Thanksgiving, she comes or he comes or whoever it is. Pinches the cheeks, rubs the head, says, my, how you've grown. I can't believe how big you're getting. Why does that happen? Because our minds were not created for finite understanding. We're blown away by the way that people progress, change, and transform. Why is that? It can only be that way if we were created for something more than this earth. Say, prove it. Okay, I'll try. Like I said, I'm not a classically trained scientist. I'm just giving you the best argument that I think I can, and you can fillet me in the q and I'm okay with that. But here's my answer to that question. Does it never bother anyone that a fish is never bothered by the wetness of water? Everybody's like, wait, are you going to go into a water is not wet diatribe in a sermon? No, I'm not. A fish is never bothered by the wetness of water because that's the environment it was created to exist in for its entire life. It was never created to become more than that fish existing in that water inside of its habitat. That's why a fish is never bothered by the wetness of water. Unlike a human being who's constantly bothered by the concept of time. The concept of eternity baffles the human mind because we know that we're created for something more. Yet we're constantly frustrated by it. You say, how can you prove that even further? Okay. Let's go with another popular example that would often come up inside of a uh, Baptist church. Let's go with the song by Kiss, that great Baptist band that says, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day? Or, as some of you know it, right? not judging. Why does it seem as though the world argues for this idea? The fulfillment of life is found in hedonistic p- pleasure. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Or if you ever watched that weird mid-range cable show, according to Jim, Andy famously says, you know, we're going to play that Kiss cover song. I want to rock and roll all night and part of every day. <laughs> Jim goes, why, do you want, why does Kiss only want to rock and roll all night and only part of every day? And Andy famously responds, well, you have to rest at some point. That blows the, the logic of the song. Can we on, be honest with each other in the room? a moment and ask this question if the meaning and fulfillment of life comes from hedonistic pleasure rocking and rolling all night and partying every day why do we constantly wake up to news articles where rock and roll musicians who rocked all night and partied every day put a gun to their head and blow their brains out who take their own lives what is the world's response to this particular problem? We try to mask it and call it a mental health problem. It is a mental health problem. It's called inside the human heart is longing for something more. And when you live to your hedonistic fulfillment, it never satisfies what you're currently living for. Some of you are experiencing that right now. You do drugs, you drink alcohol to numb pain, to try to enjoy life. You're trying to get the best job to make the most money right now because one day that's going to bring about happiness. And it never does. Because if Genesis 1 is right, we are created for something more. And that leads into my third case here inside of creation. And then I'll move quickly to our final two thoughts. This is, by the way, where I wanted to spend the majority of our time. Because this is, the cru- this is the crux of the argument to science being disproven. So we you could say, well, there's a cosmological argument. You can argue from transcendence. But there's also something else I would like to argue when it comes to creation. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered among, above it. Why does that matter? this word accountability, accountability. The reason why creation is so debated is because ultimately if there is a divine creator, that means that humanity has someone to be accountable to. I'm going to share probably the most graphic thing I've ever shared in the entire time that I've preached my entire life. And I don't mean to be disgusting. I don't mean to be rude, but I think it's important. And I, want to bring it to your attention. See, during the final days of the collapsing Marxist experiment in the Soviet Union, Soviet novelist Chinese Atamatov retells this story that takes place in the Soviet Union. Stalin had come uh, to the end of his reign and was trying to hold on as long as he possibly could. He took a pool of uh, reporters and state heads to a particular barn for a photo shoot to try and give one last desperate push towards proving that the Soviet Union was strong. And he was questioned in this particular pool and asked, why are you going through with this masquerade, this charade that the Soviet Union is so strong and it's going to last and it's going to be successful. And Stalin demanded that all the cameras be put away, and he walked over to the barn, and there were chickens that he had been feeding at this particular time. He picked up a chicken, put it underneath his arms while it's still living, and began to pluck the feathers out of the chicken, which, if you've ever done to a dead chicken, is incredibly difficult. So imagine doing it to a live one while it's screaming, howling, and trying to get away from you. Stalin un feathers this bird and lays it down on the ground. This is enough to really at some level kill a chicken. And as it begins to hobble away from him, he throws some bread down on the ground and the chicken comes back over to him and begins to eat it off of the ground. And curls up inside of his pant... Which Stalin replies, this is the way to rule people. Did you see how that chicken followed me for food, even though I had caused it such torture? People are like that chicken. If you inflict inordinate pain on them, they will follow you for food for the rest of their lives. Stalin had killed millions of people without even thinking about it, his own people. You say, David, why would you share that story with us? Because if there is no creator God, there's no one who Stalin will ever have to stand for and be accountable to. Just remember you can 't say in that particular moment to Stalin that 's evil that 's wrong unless you believe that there is something that is good. you can 't believe that there is something good unless there's a moral law giver you can't or a moral law to delineate what is good and what is evil. You can't argue that there is something evil without there being something good without there being a moral law to delineate what is good and what is evil. and you can't argue for a moral law unless there is a moral law giver. I, I'm not trying to be coy and I'm not trying to pull a sleight of hand here. What I am saying is there are rational scientific arguments, the Kalam cosmological argument that argue for the existence of the universe as being caused. There is transcendence written on the heart of every human being that argues that there must be a creator. And the measure of accountability, and I think this is probably why we're in such a grave stage and situation in our country and in our world. Beloved, let me me just argue this particular moment. We have cleaned up history. We've scrubbed it of all the uncomfortable spots. say, how so? We want to argue that the arguments of Marxist, communists, and socialists, and purveyors of Nazism are not really that dangerous. Beloved, they have to be dangerous. They have to be evil. Because if they're not evil, there's no such thing as good. If there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as a moral law. If there's no such thing as a moral law to delineate between good and evil, you can't call anything evil. Science is arguing law where for hundreds and hundreds of years we've argued metaphysically, how does something exist? Where does it come from? Last two case studies, and I'll move quickly. Flip over to your Bible in Matthew chapter six or Mark chapter six. Excuse me. If you're borrowing one of our uh, Bibles, it's page six hundred and ninety-three. <laughs> Creation is the forefront of the battleground. It's probably where we'll spend. I would. Believe we'll spend the majority of our time in our Q and A afterwards talking about. But another hang up to the idea of science disproving Christianity is miracles. We say, "How can this possibly happen?" So I take you to my favorite miracle in Mark chapter six and in verse thirty, we read of the feeding of five thousand. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus And they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far from spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And this is the point where the disciples lose their mind. How? says this. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Now, a lot of times we're like, Okay, five loaves, two fish. Maybe we can put on a decent. This is not big food, people. This is a small lunch. Five little loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to, to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all, so they all so they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So you say, okay, whatever, like let's move past uh, Creation argument, you got that cosmological thing and that transcendence thing and that accountability thing. Fine. Science has disproved Christianity here. There's no way Jesus stood in front of five thousand people and fed them with five loaves and two fish. Science tells us that there's just no way that this can be historically true. Historians claim this, right? Van Harvey says that the defense of the the miraculous can never be taken seriously by the critical historian because such thinking violates what we now call the common sense view of the world. Well, who established what the common sense view of the world is? And why do I have to accept your common sense view of the world, right? Don't we live in a pluralistic society where everybody's truth is right for them? So how can we have a common sense view of the world? See, the arguments for pluralism, the arguments for alternative truth claims, come back to bite us if we make such assertions that this is the common sense view of history. So now I have no common sense. We've resorted to insulting people. Anybody go to a debate class? I remember this. It's called a red herring argument. It means you don't have enough proof on your side to prove your particular claim, so you begin to attack your opponent. Doesn't seem very fair or nice. I understand miracles are miraculous. Not arguing anything other than a miracle is what it says it is. A miracle. It's one thing, and I want to just say this right here because this is key. It's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes, and cannot speak to others. That's one thing to say. It's quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. I believe in the scientific method. Repeatable, verifiable, must have a cause. I believe in all of those things. But I'm also not going to limit and suggest that things cannot or can't happen outside of those rules happen all the time you say how we refer to things all the time as miracles if jesus did them you'd be like well it's not miraculous you say how so okay one example i'll move to my third claim one, one example of this is the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Al Michaels says on live television in 1980 when the U.S. is playing the Soviet Union. Again, the Soviets are everywhere. <laughs> Even today. Probably listening right now. Hi, guys. We just want to say in this moment, as the final seconds tick down, Al Michaels says on national television, do you believe in miracles? Time hits zero, and Al Michaels explodes. Yes! Because there was no reason on God's green earth why a bunch of college hockey students would ever beat a Soviet team. See, David, that's a silly illustration. It, yeah, you're right. It is a silly illustration to prove this idea. Even the most ardent scientist believes that miraculous things happen. Give me another illustration. Okay, but only because you asked. We're pressed for time, but I'll give you one because you asked. A woman goes to the doctor. She and her husband are not supposed to be able to get pregnant, and yet she's pregnant. Now, I'm not talking about us, so I know everybody's like, wait, what? No, I'm not talking about us. Time and time and time again, we could probably pull Our church and talked to woman after woman after woman who said, I sat in a doctor's office weeping my eyes out because he said I would never have kids. And then a child would run up that is born of that woman. Miracles still exist because even the most ardent, atheistic, agnostic, or just skeptical doctors even in those moments, have to say something happened outside of the bounds of science that I have no reason or answer for. The final argument that I take you to is that of the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. It says... Paul, speaking of Paul, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me. Also, as by one born out of due time, I don't have time to unpack this as uh, cleanly as I would probably like to. If I had more time, I would. I'm going to point you at the end of this to a resource that you can read for yourself. But I do want to make mention of this because the most audacious claim that the Bible makes is that Jesus came to this earth, born of a virgin, was fully or truly God and truly man, lived a perfect and sinless life, and his act of obedience fulfilled everything that was asked of him and yet did not sin. And then, even though he had lived this perfect and sinless life, he's put to death on a cross, and he is buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, some women find him not there. They say, aha, okay, we can stretch food. We've seen this happen. I've gone to buffets with plenty of people who should have ate them out of house and home. But this is audacious. It is. and Science says this can't have happened. My answer to that particular truth claim is twofold. One, I would encourage you to go and pick up a great book written by a man named Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. He's the originator. There have been a lot of imitators since Lee Strobel. He's the first one who did this. He's a law journalist who was a skeptic, was an atheist, and then became convinced of Christ. But I, I leave you with his starting argument. Eyewitness testimony is the most damning testimony in all of legal trial. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul suggests that over 500 people saw Jesus after he had gone to the grave. And we can talk about this more in the Q&A. If you have questions, there are lots of theories such as the swoon theory and others that suggest that Jesus actually didn't die. I can go into that particular argument a little bit more there. But I do want to leave you with this particular spot in Scripture. Jesus is seen by over 500 people, last of all by the Apostle Paul. And to close our time together, I leave you with the famous words of C.S. Lewis. See, what you have to do when you read the Bible is you have to understand who Jesus is. You have to understand the truth claims that are made about him, because ultimately, creation is not where the argument hinges. Miracles are not even where the argument hinges. It's what do we do with this man named Jesus Christ? And the Bible claims that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died a death he did not have to die, and he rose from that death and defeated death, hell, the grave, and sin. C.S. Lewis famously said about this particular problem, there are only three options that exist when dealing with this problem. Jesus Christ must be one of these three things. He must be a liar. He's just a, a charlatan. He's just pulled a fast one on everybody. He's either a lunatic, he's psychopathic, he's outside of his mind, or he must be Lord. But he cannot be two, he cannot be three, he must be one of those three things. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Let's pray together this evening. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward college, or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.